Well, good morning again. Um, and just to get out of the way, yes, I had a problem with a pen this morning. Thankfully, it's not a huge problem, but now that won't be a distraction. Um, I have a story to tell you this morning from the scriptures, a story of God's sovereignty and providence. Because whatever things were written before were written for our learning so that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Real, objective hope. Romans 15, verse 4. Please join me in prayer. Father, I thank you that you have preserved in your word real stories of real people just like us. And so I pray that we might take hope from the patience and comfort of the scriptures in this story. So please bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. I, uh, I'm sure that many of you, maybe most of you, know who Vody Bauckham is, and um, maybe you've heard him tell the story of his first trip to Africa, and how he arrived there and was met by the church there in Zambia, and this little old man came up to him and said, is this your first visit here to Africa? And he said, yes. And that little man reached up and grabbed both of his cheeks and said, welcome home. Welcome home. And as he tells the story, it was like a flash. He realized that some hundreds of years before, some of his ancestors had been kidnapped or taken prisoner of war and had been taken to the west coast of Africa and sold to the slavers and had survived the horrendous trip across the Atlantic to America, had been sold into slavery and over the course of generations, had, many had married and had children until he was born, maybe 50 years ago or so, to a single mother who was a Buddhist in South LA. And by God's good grace had been brought to saving faith and had flown back across the Atlantic to bring gospel comfort and hope to those people. And God had used all that suffering and pain and oppression to, to the good and had brought something back to Africa in his good will and providence. So the story I want to tell you today is about God's sovereign authority and good providence in the life of that man, Jacob. And this story centers around three days in his life. The first is the day that, he, that Joseph brought his sons to Jacob to be blessed shortly before he died. And the second day is the day that Joseph brought his father, Jacob, into the throne room of Pharaoh. And then the third day is the day that Jacob spoke his last words to his sons. So Hebrews 11, verses 21 through 22. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. 22, by faith, or 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. In verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. 
So these are like three snapshots in the life of those three old men of the faith at the end of their lives. And it's significant that the author of Hebrews focuses on the end of their lives, not at what they had accomplished through faith, not on the difficulties they have had that God had delivered them through, but on what they are looking forward to and seeing ahead in the future. They were looking ahead with great hope to a better day, to the day when the covenant promises of God and Christ would be realized. So by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So Genesis, the whole chapter 48, is devoted to this little story that's mentioned here in Hebrews 11 on the day that's very close to the day that Jacob dies. And Joseph is bringing his two sons to be blessed by his father. And Jacob is sick and feeble. He's near death. And someone tells him that Joseph is coming. And so he sits up in his bed. Maybe in your mind's eye you can see this old man gathering up his strength to sit up and swing his legs over the side of the bed and then support himself on a staff. Maybe shaking in his effort. He wants with everything he has to bless these two sons of Joseph. And as he waits for Joseph to come into the room with his sons, he He's bowing there, worshiping God, leaning on his staff because he, he's got to, got to hold himself up. And he's praising and he's thanking God and he's submitting himself, all things, to God because he has learned throughout his life the futility of his own efforts and he's relying now upon God. And we know what was in his heart by what he told Joseph. He's thinking of God's promises to him that had been uh, fulfilled in ways he never expected. And so um, he now knows that God will preserve him and his sons and his seed. And so he blesses Joseph's sons in hope, in that hope. And so on this day, Jacob's faith, his simple, believing trust in God, is stronger and deeper and richer than at any other day in his life. On this day, very close to his death, Jacob is worshiping God, leaning on his staff, leaning actually on his faith. His body is failing, it's bent over, his eyes are dim, but through faith, Through his believing trust, his inner man is standing straight and tall. And he has eyesight that's looking far into the future, looking down through the years to that day of the fulfillment of God's promise that he would bless all the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham, through him. And so that's the first day. So let's turn the clock back now to... The second day, the second day I want to talk about, 17 years before the day that Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. 
And Genesis 47, verses 7 through 10, tells the story of how Joseph escorted his father into Pharaoh's throne room and presented him in a formal ceremony of greeting. And so think of what Joseph is, Jacob is taking in right here. He's, he's standing before one of the mightiest kings in the world at that time. And here his son is that man's right-hand man. And, and there's an exchange, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh asks him how old he was. And Jacob responds like this. The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. Some context here. As Jacob said, he's 130 years old. He will live longer. And we know that Joseph is 39 years old on this day. And Reuben, the oldest of the 12, is likely 53. And Benjamin, the youngest, is likely 33. And he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So here he is in answering Pharaoh's question, comparing his life with the lives of his father and his grandfather. And we get a glimpse into his heart. Obviously, he's feeling his age. And he believes at this point that he's probably not going to live as long as they did. But there's much more here than that. He says, from his vantage point on this day, standing before this king, that his days, the story of his life, the events that he has walked through, have been evil compared to what he knows of the history of his father and grandfather, evil. And the fruit that he sees in his sons does not appear to be of the best kind when compared to what he has seen come from the lives and efforts of his father and grandfather. Now, why would he feel this way? One commentator puts it very well. It says, neither Abraham nor Isaac had known so much toil and trouble. And ever since that day when he beguiled his brother of his birthright, all kinds of bitterness seems to have been mingled in his cup. He was a fugitive for his life from his father's house. He was compelled to serve seven years for a beloved wife and then was cheated of his recompense, the reward of his labor, this young woman by a deceitful father-in-law. He was doomed to serve seven years longer and then to endure the vexation of having his wages changed ten times. He was grieved by the dishonor of his only daughter and by the conduct of his sons who revenged it with such reckless cruelty. His beloved wife died in childbed and in a cloud of sorrow settled upon his soul and remained there to the end of his life. His son Reuben had disgraced the honor of the family by a foul crime, 
He had, he had lost Joseph for 22 years. He had endured the present famine with all its fearful anxieties. Surely he knew from bitter experience the ills of human life. And maybe I can just add to that that when God called Jacob to return to Bethel, Jacob realized that he had failed in his leadership of leading his family to worship the one true God. And he called them together and he commanded them to put away the foreign gods. And then he gathered up all the idols and all the pagan paraphernalia and buried it under an oak tree. What a humbling experience. And then later Judah, his, his son Judah, left the family for a time, married a pagan woman, and two of, J- of, of Judah's sons were put to death by God for their sin. And then after his wife died, he ended up fathering a child by his own daughter-in-law in a situation that's just fraught with sin on all sides. And then Genesis 42 and 43 tell the story of the ten older brothers uh, some 16 years after they'd sold Jacob, Joseph into slavery, coming down to Egypt to buy grain because of the famine. And it's evident in that story that Jacob does not trust these brothers, his sons. He doesn't trust them. And all of, all of this described in the scriptures about jo- uh, Jacob's sons may be just the tip of the iceberg of the sin in their lives. And so Jacob's days have been evil compared to his father and grandfather. And all of this now in the covenant family through whom God would bring or bless all the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham. Now, Jacob knows the story of Genesis 18, verse 19, where God, in his movement toward destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he stated that he knew Abraham so that he, Abraham, would command his children after him to keep the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and justice. That's what God calls fathers to do. But Jacob's sons were not keeping the way of the Lord. Now, wouldn't it be reasonable in our human way of thinking that God would bring the Messiah into the world through a righteous family? So in in Jacob's mind, who then among these sons of his, given that Joseph is supposedly dead, who is going to be worthy to, to continue this forward? Who can he pass this blessing down to, like Isaac had passed it down to him? So it's no wonder that there is some discouragement about the future on this day. And as New Covenant believers, we know, we know that the focus of God's blessing, this blessing of Abraham, is that he would bring his only begotten son into the world to die for sinners, and then to be raised to life again to rescue them and to bring them home. Now, we might wonder if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob understood that. I strongly believe that they did understand that, and here's why. In John 8, verse 56, Jesus told the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Now, we, can't, we don't read so much of Isaac and his faith and understanding, but he specifically passed this blessing down to Jacob in particular. And Jacob, on his deathbed, prophesied of his son Judah in this way, in Genesis 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the peoples. Well, Shiloh is the one who brings peace, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob see the coming Messiah in the blessing of Abraham? Clearly, I think they did. Did they understand the fullness of that promise and all the details in the, way, in the same way that we can? Maybe not. Maybe not. But they trusted that God would fulfill this ancient promise, began with Adam and Eve, that a Messiah would come through a family line to save sinners. And here's another scripture that leads us to the conclusion that they did know, Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. These, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, they had, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now, they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So yes, we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God because we share the same precious faith. So when Jacob responded to Pharaoh's question about his age, his words reveal his heart, right? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so on this day, it appears that he's at a low ebb as he's standing before this mighty king. Now, we know the end of the story. We've read it many times. We know that God had preserved Joseph in Egypt. But on this day, not long after Jacob had arrived in Egypt, how much does he know about what really happened? Does he really know about the extent of the wickedness and hatred that had been in the hearts of his sons? Well, we don't know how much he knows. But based on what he said to Pharaoh, on the tenor of it, and then on what we will read next on the, the last day of his life, it would seem that Joseph does not know the whole story yet, doesn't know all the details yet, and he doesn't maybe fully grasp the powerful providence of God moving in his family. So if things go the way they go for us in our day, it may have been some time before Joseph's brothers gathered the courage to confess to their father what they'd done. And given that the shock of, of hearing that Joseph was alive actually had been so hard on him physically, maybe they were waiting for a time when they felt that he could take another shock as they confessed what had actually happened. 
So now let's fast forward back again 17 years, now to the last day of Jacob, recorded in Genesis 49. And here it appears he's just hours away from his death, and his sons have gathered around him, and he gives them his last words. Some of those last words are prophetic blessings, and some are scorching rebukes. Ouch for some of those brothers. But on this day, we know that Jacob knows the whole sordid story of what the older brothers had done. How do we know that? We know it because of what he says about Joseph. So it's with the full knowledge of what had happened that Jacob blessed Joseph. And in that blessing, there's a marked contrast between how he had felt about his life 17 years before and how he views his life now. So let's read this blessing that he gave Joseph. Genesis 49, verses 22 to 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. He's speaking from knowledge now. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well, his branches run over the wall. It's like he sees that Joseph's life is a, is a living expression in living color of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever, whatever he does shall prosper. That's, what's, what, that's Joseph's life. So Jacob understands that this fruit that he sees in his son Joseph came from God. It came from the word of God that had been planted in Joseph's life early. That had been, that had sprouted up. It had been tended to and watered. And it had grown up into a vine that was bearing a fruit in a very dark and desperate circumstances. But there it was. And then in verse 23, he goes on. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength. And the arms, the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. So the ten brothers, the archers, had sorely wounded Joseph and hated him. 
But, as he said, Joseph's bow abode in strength. In other words, he did not respond in kind. He was able to resist this strong urge to shoot back, and he didn't let the arrow fly. How was he able to do that? As Jacob said, the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. We would say the Spirit of God was at work there. So it's hard to grasp, maybe, the horror of what took place on that day, some 39 years before. Can you imagine the brothers seeing their younger brother coming toward them in the field, venting their malice toward, with one another, and then surrounding him and pushing him and roughing him up and threatening to kill him and ripping his colored robe off of him, throwing him into a pit. And then imagine Joseph in that pit hearing his brother's laughter and, and hateful talk as they decided to sell him into slavery, knowing full well what that might mean for him. And again, all this is happening in the covenant family through whom... All the families of the earth will be blessed. And now, years later, as those ten men stood before Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, his firm treatment of them provokes a confession from them as they're standing before him. They'd never forgotten Joseph's cries of anguish as they sold him off as a slave. His cries were still ringing in their ears. They were haunted by what they had done. And in Genesis 42, verses 21 to 24, they say this, and they're speaking in Hebrew, and Joseph is listening to them. He doesn't, they don't know that he understands what they're saying. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress had come, has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you? Saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Joseph heard these words, and he turned away and wept. No doubt he had struggled with anger and hatred toward his brothers. And here they are standing before him, and he can put them to death with a snap of his fingers. It's as if he had a bow in his hand, and he gets an arrow out of the quiver, and he just pulls that thing back, and he's ready to let go. But he doesn't, and he holds, and slowly... He lets the tension out and puts the arrow back in the quiver. Mm. Right? The hands, the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob in the moment, right then and there. And so then they, they leave, and on their return trip, something happens. When Joseph threatens to keep Benjamin as a slave, Judah stands up and lays down his own life for his brother to save the life of his father. And 
Joseph then breaks down and reveals himself to them. And of course, they were terrified, but he spoke life to them and not death. So on his deathbed, Jacob has seen a display of the power of the gospel in his own family. He's seen a demonstration of the truth that where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Jacob has seen Joseph, in Joseph, a living expression of the abounding grace of God covering sin, covering the mountain of sin that represented the sin in the lives of his ten sons. And we know history is full of stories of men who come to power and kill those who oppress them, but not this day. And history is full of stories of men who were made king and then killed their family, but not on this day. Instead of responding in kind to his brothers, Joseph has shown them mercy because the blessing of Abraham was at work in his life. So Jacob sees that Joseph is a man of living faith, the kind of faith that changes lives. Joseph is risen above the sin of his brothers. He was living out the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joseph understands his place in history, in the history of the blessing of Abraham. And he was faithfully doing his part, preserving the life of the covenant family. And so instead of being destroyed by what had happened to him, instead of concentrating on their hate toward him and its consequences, he rose above that. So God did not bring the Messiah into the world through a righteous family. No, he brought the Messiah into the world by using the sin in that family. And he showed them that he is working all things together for the good. And so on his deathbed, Jacob again compares himself with Abraham and Isaac. And on this day, he sees the history of his life in an entirely different light. And so he says, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. How far have they excelled? He says, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They've, they've overflown any expectation of what Abraham and Isaac had thought that they might experience. And so Jacob is giving glory to God, and he understands that he and his sons have been blessed beyond measure with repentance and forgiveness of sin and reconciliation. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is at work in the lives of that family. And so he has a hope on the day of his death that he did not have 17 years before. Now something else Jacob understands on this day, on the day of, on his deathbed, that God had been working behind his back all this time. God had allowed him to believe that Joseph was dead and then to grieve and sorrow for 22 years. All the while, God was working his purposes out beyond the range of Jacob's vision and understanding. So God was fulfilling his purposes in spite of sinful men. 
using even the cruel hatred of Jacob's sons to bring the blessing of Abraham along in history, in his day. And Jacob knows that behind his back, God had matured his son Joseph and brought out in him this godly maturity, a manhood that reflected the manhood of Jesus Christ himself in the very pit of oppression and suffering. So Jacob has a basis for objective faith. He has a living faith as he faces death that God will certainly keep his covenant and he will perform his promises to save sinners of whom Jacob likely felt that he was the foremost. And so his faith is stronger on this day than on the day when God first met him as he was fleeing Esau. So not only does Jacob know that he's safe in God, but he knows that the Messiah is also safe in God. And no one, no, no thing, no sin is going to get in the way of the Messiah coming and doing God's work of saving sinners and bringing them home. By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the deep beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, and they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So just a few applications in closing. It's very simple. The living God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind, over, the, over history. And he will bring his purposes to pass, even if it looks to us like he isn't doing a blasted thing. We can trust him. If he hides what he's been doing, what he is doing from us for a time, we can still trust him. We may suffer in discouragement and pain and hardship during such a time of darkness, but we can trust him. He may never reveal to us all the reasons and causes or his purposes and the tragedies and the hardships and the struggles and sorrows of our own lives, but we can trust him. God will bring his purposes to pass in spite of evil men, in spite of evil men within the covenant community of believers. He will. And he may choose to use the sin and lawlessness within the church to accomplish his purpose. Even so, we can trust him. Because we walk by faith. Not by sight. We walk by a simple believing trust. Not trusting in what we can see or understand. We're trusting in the promise of God to save those who believe. Through his son Christ. Trusting that he actually does work all things together for good. All things. And one day we will stand complete in his presence. So it may well be that as we look at our own lives, maybe at the lives of our children, or at the lives of our parents, 
that we're filled with despair and wonder how in the world God can do anything with me or with them. Am I too far gone? Have I blown it? Are they without hope? Have they gone too far? Well, no. No one is beyond the reach of the power of God to salvation in the gospel. And so he's still at work fulfilling his promise to save those who believe. Bringing sinners to repentance and faith. Sometimes dragging and screaming, or screaming and kicking as he brings them to him and throws them into the tub of the bathwater of salvation. So we can and we must take up hope and trust in this God who continues to cause his grace to abound over and above our sin. He does keep covenant. We can trust him. Because whatever things were written before were written for our learning so that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have real objective hope. So just in closing, just please listen and drink in these wonderful words in Romans 8, verses 28 to 39, which were written for our learning, so that we, through the comfort and patience of the scriptures, might have hope. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who in the world, what in the world should we fear? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised and who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted, we were accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, we able to, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Brothers and sisters, our God is sovereign. We can trust him. 
Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the hope that you placed before us with all these words to encourage us. And Father, I pray even for my own sin of my lack of trust, even as I speak and knowing in my own life that I have not trust you as I ought to in the situations and the hardships of my own life. Father, help us, encourage us to stand quietly in hope and allow you to do your work and to praise you and thank you in the difficulties of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.